You're listening to STEM Essential, an Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council podcast. Hear from leading advocates and voices about why STEM education is crucial for our world today and tomorrow. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jeff Weld, Director of Iowa's STEM Council. STEM is Iowa's and our nation's edunomic development initiative, where education and economic development merge to improve lives and communities. The voices of leading edunomic developers are heard on this podcast, beginning with Dr. Eris Winger, a mathematics assistant professor at Gwinnett College in Georgia and co-founder and CEO of Mathematics Enrichment for Diversity and Learning. And he directs the secondary school mathematics program at Hybrid Education of Greater Atlanta. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Winger. Jeff, thank you for having me. A pleasure. Let's begin with a revelation. Eris, tell us about something few would know about you that, that had a profound but maybe a subtle impact on your own STEM professional path and your current practices. It made you who you are. Um, again, Jeff, thank you for having me. Um, and that's a great question. So I guess few people know about Cora Sadowski, Dr. Cora Sadowski in my life. So um, she was somebody who, you know, was teaching me a course um, while I was an undergraduate. And um, I was one of these people who was up in the front row, like um, answering all the questions and so forth. And I was gonna be an actuary. And then at the end of one class, I got up to walk out and she, you know, made the decision to um, pull me aside and ask me what I wanted to do with my career. Um, and I told her I was gonna be an actuary. And she was like, oh, well, I think you have the ability to get a PhD in mathematics. And I was like, oh, I had never thought about that, right? And so um, just with her decision to see me and say, oh, I see so much in him um, to pull him aside and tell him perhaps something he doesn't know um, has inspired me for now it's decades, right? Where that has guided me in everything that I do as a teacher to consistently be looking for you know, something within children that they may not see within themselves, right? Using my experience about, you know, how people have come along as students to see within every child the ability and the potential to be something bigger than they may think. Um, so that's guided me for a very, very long time. That is awesome. The power of a teacher, huh? Oh, my goodness. And that is not... Um, that's going to be something that I continue to talk about, that it is completely, um, we completely underestimate the power of teachers, the power of a word, a phrase, a look, and frankly, the power, I mean, the power, that power to uplift and change, but also the power to remove and invalidate, right? It's, it's a huge responsibility. And so in the work that I've been doing, it really is about starting there, really recognizing that when people, when young people see you, no matter how they act or behave around you, but when young people, when you're in front of young people, you are a role model and you have the ability to change their lives for the better. Oh, no kidding. I can't wait to dig into that with you. But before I do, 
you're the first person I think I've ever met, and and maybe our listeners, forgive me, listeners, if if this isn't true for you, but the first I've ever met who aspired to actuary from a very young age. Yes. How does yes. a person even come to know that there is such a profession and, and aim at it? Yeah. So yeah, that you know, um, I'll say that I definitely did some investigation, right? Because so this so it's just just this combination of like I love math. And so the question was for me, how do I keep loving math and also find a profession? And so I did I did a little bit of digging. Now this is in the late 90s, so the internet is not like this huge thing still. But I, you know, I looked around my department, you know, and, and said, oh, that's something I could do where I could just still be in math, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it was definitely a, you know, an investigation of like, how can I make money doing the thing that I love? Very prescient for a young young man of the nineties. Yes, that's correct. That's right. All right. Well, let's let's dig into that passion that you bring to the table. The next uh, question I'd like to ask you is: the the topic you're representing for this podcast is equity in STEM education, and I want you yeah. to just take a step back and and share with the listeners why the topic matters. Why should your listeners care mm. about the topic equity in STEM mm. education? Yes. So the the central question of equity in any classroom, but in particular equity in STEM classrooms, is about who is being left out. Right. That um, for the last you know fifteen years before you know before the last you know few years in my professional development myself, um, I've looked back in my classrooms and I've been like, oh, you know, I've done a great job, and the reason that. I've given myself for why I've done a great job is because, oh, Tommy and John and Sally, those people wrote me emails and told me that, oh, you were fantastic, or this person got into this college or this person, right? And so they've always been these singular type of examples of excellence that I've used as the barometer for which I have done well in my classroom, right? And I've used this narrative for a very long time to feel really good about myself, right? But in working uh, with equity, you know, on equity projects in the last few years, I've decided to actually go back and say, was that really as good as what I thought it was? Right. And then all of a sudden I started to think about, you know, all these other people who were not the five or six people who did well and everyone lauded. Right. That there are all these, you know, in a lot of ways, faceless, nameless students that I'm not so sure about anymore, right? And what that requires is like a critical reimagination and ref- reflection of your past work, right? And 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 so I've had to really change um, the ways I thought I think about success within the classroom, right? And for me now, instead of it being this default, okay did the best students, best in quotes, did the best students do well? Um, It is, who is it that I may not have been seeing? And can I see as many people as I can? Can I have, can I minimize the marginalization in my classrooms? So when we think about equity and why is it important, we're really asking, does every single person in your classroom feel valued? And that's important, particularly in STEM spaces, not because, not just because we want to have a bunch of STEM majors later, but because STEM is so deeply connected to the future of this country, 
right? And so the logical uh, argument goes like this, that if STEM is the future, and now we have STEM classes and we have children who don't feel validated and comfortable in this space, then they create generational removement from STEM and therefore generational removement from the future in our state. Mm -hmm. And the state of Iowa. And so, um, so I, again, I'm not, and to be clear, I'm not suggesting that every single person in every STEM class has to become a biology, chemistry, math, or engineering major. I'm suggesting that just like in any um, literature class where we are pushing forth literacy and having comfortability with reading a book, that we should also demand the same type of rigor and high standard that every single child within these great classes should feel welcome and valued and comfortable with STEM. Now, what I want to honor is the fact that we are in a system that forces us to give a number to our performance, a letter grade to our performance, right? And that those numbers and letter grades have an impact on our children, right? And I'm here to say the radical and bold thing is that how is it, because this is how powerful I think we are, how is it that we as teachers can still make somebody feel valuable, like they belong in a space where they get a C? How, how yeah. can you do that? And I believe that that's possible. I believe that we are so powerful to have fundamentally incredible experiences with our children that even if the system dictates that you have to have this number or letter assigned to your performance, that you can still walk out of this classroom and say, you know what? That was awesome anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let me dig into that just a little bit. Yeah. You make a revelation yeah. here that I think a lot of STEMers as we call our community, the stemmers can resonate with. And that is, uh, you comparatively, you admitted something along the lines of sailing through mathematics. Uh, obviously, you're, mm. you're a college mathematics professor. So uh, you had some things going for you in terms of, uh, of uh, hard work or, or knack or whatever the, yeah. the, the yeah. secret sauce might have been, which isn't yeah. widely shared. Obviously, there's not a whole lot of math professors in the world, and you are yeah. one. And I think yes. there's a lot of STEM professionals that grapple with this same sense of, STEM came pretty easily to us. We found it innately interesting in a way that others did not. So we become this rare community who thrive in STEM. Yeah. And then as STEM teachers, we're charged yes. with reaching a very a, a heterogeneous group of kids, most of whom have no interest in our topic, yes. whether that be chemistry or algebra. How do you, yeah. what do you advise to people and, and maybe from your own experience that you draw from that helps yeah. someone like you uh, reach communicate with and resonate with people who were not like you. They didn't yes. find math inherently interesting. Yes. No. And I appreciate that. So there are a couple of things. First of all, my walk, you know, I, so for my own personal walk, I had to go back and re-reflect, right? Because when I go back and look, I have completely enjoyed the narrative that people have given to me that I was gifted. That has felt so great for so long. <laughs> and I've had to actually just get rid of that, right? And when I go back and look again, I can, I will honestly say that the reason why I'm a college professor now is because of two things. Number one, I was 
always valued in it, right? People thought I was great and I felt important in it because they kept telling me that I was good at it, right? So when I was winning these two digit multiplication battles at the board, and then I was winning these other competitions, right? Then people were just like, oh, you're good at this. You're good at this. You're good at this. And I spent a lot of time, you know, when tragedy hit my own life with the passing of my father when I was younger, then, you know, when I went to school, you know, I would revel in the space of mathematics because that was a place where people were just like, oh, you're good. And it, it became a, a big part of my identity. And so, you know, that this the safety and the well-being of me being in that discipline played a big role in me remaining in it. And then um, and then, oh, by the way, I spent 10 years being in mathematics. Right. Mm-hmm. That That's the reason. Right. So I spent 10 years where mathematics was very much the center of my professional life. And I always felt value in it. And those are the two things that are the, the biggest reasons why I am a college math professor now. Right. So dispelling this notion that somehow I'm ordained from above with math whatever, right? That just like a surgeon, just like anybody else, I had to practice my craft. Now, how this translates to um, me looking now. So the question is, how is it now that I can look at a child in my classroom or a student in my classroom and say, okay, you don't understand it. Um, It's because I recognize that there are elements of STEM and in mathematics where we we think about, you know, the culture of these um, disciplines are something that may hold children back, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I, so I'm always thinking about in math classrooms, how what are the mechanisms, what are the policies, what are the structures of my classroom that might make somebody feel like, oh, um, you're not talking to me, or oh, I don't belong. And I know that when I see somebody who is not enjoying mathematics, that it is never about them, particularly when it's a child. Right. So I know, again, you know, you and I've talked about this a lot, Jeff, about when someone says that they hate mathematics, they are not talking about mathematics. They're talking about an experience with mathematics so that when I see a student and they have an aversion to the greatest subject, you know, in the world, math, biology, chemistry, engineering, then you have to say to yourself, well, wait, these things are fundamentally astonishingly beautiful. How is it that a beautiful child could say that they hate a beautiful subject, right? <laughs> then it, but, but, but then we have to say, well, wait, maybe it's not about that. Maybe they're saying they're coming from something, an experience in which, oh, um, they didn't have the relationship with these beautiful subjects that we wish they had. And so when I see a child who says that they hate these subjects, then I see someone who's had a bad experience. And then now it's my job to try and change that experience. Right. So um, that's that's what I'm pushing now. Right. That when you see someone who has this aversion, then it is now our job to try and switch that. And by the way, that starts with us. Right. Again, with the power that we have to change the narrative for kids to feel like they belong, we also have the power to change their relationship with the subject. And again, I, and I'm not, and what am I, what am I suggesting? I'm not suggesting that we're talking about um, them getting an A. I'm suggesting that perhaps you call Jamal over and have them look at this experiment and have this experiment, you know, change the way they think about chemistry. 
Right. I feel like, yeah. by the way, we're fortunate to enjoy Dr. Winger's presence here at the June 18, 19, I believe, of the two-day uh, equity, diversity, and STEM workshop that you'll be conducting. And I'm going to guess that part of the content of your workshop has to do with sharing a skill set you've obviously honed and worked hard at. And that must be the ability to get behind the eyeballs of your students and see the world as they're seeing the world. And I wonder if that's part of the equation as you try to yeah. convey it to the teachers in your workshops. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, because we have to we have to remember how it used to be. I mean, again, we we think that everything was so easy for us, you know, when we we're on the other side, right? But I think that, um, yeah, I mean, we'll definitely try and jump into back into the, or maybe for the first time into the experiences of our students, of people who um, might not be enjoying our subjects for all different types of reasons. And just mm -hmm. trying to understand, you know, that they may not connect with the subject as much as we did when we were younger. And what is it that we can do about that? Love it. It, it is not a comment on the beautiful discipline mathematics. It is a comment on their experience. Yes. That we're responsible that in a lot of ways that we're all responsible for. So that the teacher, the math teacher that was there before me, that this student had, that they are that person and I are part of the same family. And mm -hmm. yeah, right, right. And the person who who they have after me are all part of the same group. And we all have a responsibility to each other to try and make sure that the person who comes through us onward to them, you know, has a relationship with mathematics that's productive. Absolutely. And in general. Yeah. It is a handing off of the baton, a very precious baton, human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Eris, uh, let me ask you about the theme of the podcast. It is current conditions and future outlooks for STEM education. Let's start with the current conditions. How would you characterize this particular moment in human history when it comes to STEM education? And uh, upon uh, reflecting on the current status, uh, a little bit more about how you're helping uh, with current status to move to a more hopeful future status. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you might expect, it is supremely complex, right? I'll start, first of all, with that. I mean, this in a lot of ways is the perhaps the most powerful moment in STEM in the history of the country, right? I mean, we have such access and such abilities to because of the power of the internet to have access to information and access to, um, I mean, information itself, right? You can go right now and find, you know, lectures about almost anything from the top experts in the world. That's something that we could, we didn't have like 15 years ago, even, right? So, and that, you know, our top students are better than ever, right? I'm seeing people now who are taking calculus, you know, in the ninth grade, I had to wait till the 11th grade. And then that was amazing, right? So I think that the opportunities now are bigger than they have ever been. And people, you know, who are there at the top are just absolutely, you know, far and above anyone at that level has ever been in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. right? And, right, the complicated part, in addition to that, is that we also live in the United States of America, right? Where the context there is that um, certain people are seen as scientists, you know, as a given, 
right? And so that there's a lot of work that is still needed to be done in order for us to see, have the possibility that everybody can be a scientist, right? Um, and work has to be done in order to do that, right? I've spent a lot of time in my own classrooms not understanding, right, that everyone has a chance, seeing mathematics as a natural human activity, that everyone has a chance to be a mathematician. Everyone has a chance to be quantitatively literate and everyone has a chance to be a STEM uh, to be STEM worthy uh, in our society, right? So, so let I, me, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Let me let me drill into that a little bit. Yeah, what do you consider uh, the top threats to that vision of uh, future opportunity for all young Americans in STEM education? If you could name two or three of the most uh, ominous mm. looming threats that we're going to have to overcome, what would they be? Mm, it's. I mean, well, it starts with for me. It starts with our inner biases. I mean, right? If if and I have to be consistent. If I think that the power of uh, the power lies with us as teachers, then we have to confront what our inner thoughts are about who can do biology, chemistry, mathematics, and engineering, right? I mean, as well as other STEM fields. If, if we can't see a little black boy as a computer scientist, and I can't, I cannot, right, without doing some work, then how in the world can I teach this person C or Java or, right? How can I do that in a legitimate way, right? So this is part of the work that we have to do. Uh, first and foremost is to acknowledge that there are things that we think that are not our own fault, but we must confront about who can do this work. So I, I would say that's number one, that we have to sit and reflect as personal um, educators to think about that. And then number two, I mean, obviously there's systemic things, right? So those those biases themselves are, I was thinking just now in the classroom, but we have to be able to have policies and beliefs with our leaders, with our administrators that say fundamentally that every child can has the possibility of being in a STEM career or being STEM worthy. So, um, so I would say there's a personal piece with every teacher that we must overcome about acknowledgement. And then there's a systematic piece that um, where the policies reflect uh, what we keep saying in words. So this might ask for a snapshot of your of your um, tactics working with future teachers and, yeah. and practitioners. But yeah. in terms of scrubbing the bias from mm. from the minds of parents, in fact, yes. uh, Teachers, Everybody. parents, uh, yes. communities. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I know yeah. this is a big, giant question, and it's a it's yeah. a massive undertaking. But what's a short version of tactics we can yeah. all employ today to begin scrubbing yeah. these biases from our own minds as well as mm. those who mm -hmm. have the power to shape kids' lives? Yeah, and that's that's a really hard question. Yeah. And so, first of all, yeah, this is why, you know, it's it's deeply unfortunate this time that we're in, you know, that I won't be able to come and be there in person with people uh, for this workshop. But I will say that it for me, it starts it starts with acknowledgement. Right. It is. It trust me, it is not hard for me to go back and rewrite the first you know, 15 to 20 years of my career. That is hard, hard work to go back and simply question, wait, did that go as well as I thought it did, right? So the first thing that I did was literally start naming some people 
So if you're an educator, here's the central question. And I am giving away the professional development a little bit here. But the, but right. the, central, <laughs> the, the, the central question you have to ask is, can I find one person who did not get my best? Right. Mm-hmm. Can, can I name one past student that maybe I ignored? I chose to ignore. I didn't see the best in. They didn't get my best. I did whatever it is. Right. To just start there and say, look, I have not been perfect. I have not been the perfect teacher, right? To really start to think about um, and then ask, well, in particular for these identities, whether it's being of color, being disabled, um, differently able, being um, uh, uh, female, different gender identities, all of these things, I can go back for sure and acknowledge that there are these populations where I have not, they have not gotten my best because of my own biases against them. Right. And so that guides me every single time I go into the classroom, just the acknowledgement of doing that. Right. Being able to do that and find some of these people in their faces allowed me to stop looking at my classroom, my math classroom as a math classroom and started looking at those people as individuals. Right. And so because and then that started to have me teach people and not teach mathematics. We should be teaching mm-hmm. people, not biology, teaching people, not chemistry. Right. Um, so. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the hard part is, can you acknowledge that you've left people out? Because if you can't do that, then we continue to live with this narrative that, oh, I'm great. And so when these people come to us, they're going to continue to remain marginalized, invisible, because we're already going to have these thoughts about them. I spent a lot of time making excuses for my kids as to why they're not doing well. And it's all it's always been about them, uh-huh. right? It, it's, it's so convenient to blame the kids for stuff and not to really get the mirror and say, well, wait, what role do I play in this, right? I love it. So, Eris, I, I know that the listeners will agree with me in observing that you're you're an optimist. You're a positive person. And this is a yeah. challenging and heavy weight, the inequity that exists in education, STEM education. And so you're a person who's diving into one of the most complex and vexing, challenging issues in education today, yet you're an upbeat optimist. So yeah. I think in, in, in closing, share with us. Uh, something that's happened lately maybe to you or that you've conducted, you've heard, you've read, you saw, you realized that gives you that optimism, gives you that hope, Mm, gives you inspiration mm. that we in Iowa, we in America are on the right track. Yeah. Well, no. And, and, and I'm going to try and keep it together here and not cry, but I will. um, (laughs) I start with my own daughter. I really do that in the, in the face of all of this, you know, when you look at the, face of a happy child it it just makes me breathe a little bit easier right mm-hmm. and so i i want to remind everybody um that of our precious children right and that I, they have me they always have me optimistic because in so many ways they continue to push on and find ways to be happy and um they remind me yeah, children inspire me. And, my, and so it starts with my daughter. And so the next time you get a chance, whether it's on Skype or Zoom or whatever, to look your student in the eye, 
um, remember that their person, um, they're pushing along and, you know, and they're smiling sometimes too. And so you can as well, because it's harder for them. And yet they somehow, they keep going. Let's use our children as our inspiration uh, as we move forward in this time. Uh, that's a great wrap. Uh, Dr. Eris Winger, thank you for sharing your compelling vision of STEM with Iowans and our partners across the country. Jeff, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been episode one of STEM Essential, a podcast series featuring the voices of edunomic innovation brought to you by the Iowa Governor's STEM Advisory Council. Thank you all for listening and please join me next week to hear from Catherine Coonard, Vice President of Economic Connections and Integration at Mid-American Energy, who will take up K-12 STEM as workforce development. Today's and all STEM Essential podcasts will be available at iowastem.gov forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to STEM Essential. This podcast is generously co-sponsored by Collins Aerospace and Mid-American Energy, proud partners of Iowa STEM Council. To learn more and find resources, please visit iowastem.gov.